Hey, if you would, grab a Bible and get with me to Exodus chapter 20. If you need a Bible and a seat uh, somewhere in front of you, you will find a copy of God's Word. And if you're newer here and you're always wondering, like, what version do they preach out of? I preach out of the ESV version just so uh, you know uh, the version that's read for you week to week. Exodus chapter 20. Uh, As you settle into Exodus 20, you'll see uh, in your Bible a a title over that chapter that is probably, whether you've grown up in church or not, a fairly familiar title. Title and the title says the Ten Commandments. Now, I want to be honest with you today uh, that growing up in church, I had a very odd relationship with the Ten Commandments, and I'll explain what I mean by that. I knew growing up that I should know them, but I couldn't name them for you. Uh, In fact, a study a few years back showed that uh, Americans are more likely to be able to name the six ingredients of a Big Mac than they are the Ten Commandments. And, and I can relate. I, I grew up in the church, and I knew I should know them, but I, if you would have put me on the spot, I, I could not, for most of my life, have named them for you. But then again, what made the relationship odd is I always knew I grew up in gospel-preaching churches, so I knew that I was saved by grace through faith. And so if I'm honest with you, I didn't care as much as I, as, as much as I probably should have. I thought, if I'm saved by grace, yeah, I don't know the Ten Commandments, but hey, I'll be all right. And yet, I knew keeping them was good and right and honored the Lord, but I lacked an understanding of the heart motive that went behind the keeping of these commandments, that that I viewed them for so long in my life the way I think many view them is, is we rip them and we rule them. What I mean by that is we rip them out of their context and we see them as just 10 rules that we're trying to somehow in some way live by. And, and so uh, I had an odd relationship growing up in the church with the Ten Commandments. And now after 13 years of ministry, I, I don't believe my, my experience is unique. I talk to people often who, as I, as I, if, if, these, if the Ten Commandments come up, I, I hear them describe them. And, and there's one side of the spectrum where I hear some people rip them and rule them in such a way where they're, they're trying hard to follow, follow them as, as a list of rules. And, 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 and you can hear it in their voice. They're hoping that if they get a passing grade in them, maybe one day when they stand before God, they'll be okay. But then I've talked to enough people on the other side of the spectrum who've been where I've been, who they're like, hey, we're saved by grace through faith. Uh, You know, they don't say it outright because they know it's scripture, but they're just like, what's what's the big deal? So today, here's what we're doing. You ready for what we're doing? Today, we're going to have a DTR with the Ten Commandments. What's a DTR? We're going to define the relationship. What does this have to do with us who sit in this room as followers of Jesus on the other side of the cross who know that we're saved by grace through faith, what is the big deal with these things? Now, I've already mentioned this subtly, but I want to mention it directly. In order to understand the Ten Commandments, we have to keep the commandments in their context. We cannot just see this as a list of ten rules that are ripped from their context. We'll never understand the heart to them if we do that. Uh, we've said throughout the, the book of Exodus, so right, we're, we're at the midpoint of the book of Exodus right here today, and we've said here's kind of the big idea of the book as a whole, that God delivers his people from bondage to dwell with them as they worship him. That's what we've been singing about. Our worship team wrote that amazing song that we've been singing over the last few weeks, Delivered to Dwell. God is delivering his people from their bondage so to, to dwell with them. 
He as their God and them as his people as they worship him. And and the book of Exodus really does have these, these two clear distinct parts. And we've made it now through part one, which is the event of the Exodus itself. How God has delivered his people out of their bondage. And we've made it through that, but now we're coming to this beautiful scene where God is establishing his covenant with his people at Sinai. And last week, uh, Mitch did an amazing job of setting the stage for us, kind of setting the scene and, and described this moment where the masses, the host of people are there before the mountain and, and their hearts have been postured to hear what the Lord has to say. And God is going to begin to establish this covenant with his people today. And so don't miss that. The, the Ten Commandments are not just a, a list of things in our Bible with no context that surrounds them. It's God's way of, of, of beginning to establish a framework for a covenant he is making with his people so they would know how they are to worship him as his people. And now, um, I want to bring to bear some words of Jesus that help us maybe understand the Ten Commandments as we get into them here today. Jesus said, well, when Jesus was asked the question, what's the greatest commandment? He answered, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And he said, the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said something, a phrase that I, I've told you this many times, uh, a phrase I love on the end of it, because I'm always someone who's like, just get to the point, just sum it up for me. What's, he said, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And so there's something Jesus says there that helps us understand the Ten Commandments. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We see that here uh, with the first four of the Ten Commandments primarily being orienting our heart vertically to understand what does a love as God's covenant people, what does a love for him look like? And then next week, I will get us into uh, the commandments 5 through 10, which really orient our hearts horizontally to go, what does a love for neighbor lived out look like in our life? And so let me give you this as the big idea that I hope is just a header over this week and next week, and it's this. By God's grace, and don't miss that. That's not a throwaway line. I mean it. By God's grace, the Ten Commandments draw a covenantal sketch. I'll unpack that throughout this week and next. They draw a covenantal sketch of a community that loves God and loves people. And so today, we look at the first four next week, commandments 5 through 10. Pray with me. Let's ask for God's help. Lord, as we turn our eyes to your word, help us. Quiet our heart. Speak to our hearts. Lord, we seek to unleash your word right now to do what your word only has power to do. Encourage, exhort, convict, rebuke. We submit ourselves to you, and in submitting ourselves to you, we submit ourselves to the teaching of your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. 
Let me give you the first point, which is just the command taken in a way where we're making some commitments together today, and it's this. I will have no gods besides God. I will have no gods besides God. Now, I want you to look at something before we unpack what that means in verse 3. You can't miss something of what God says leading into this in verse 2. He says, I am the Lord your God. That's a direct statement, it's a clear statement, but it's something that we cannot miss because one of the things that we have tried to bring out as we've studied the book of Exodus is again and again and again, God is hammering this nail to his people. I am the Lord and there is no other. He is hammering that nail again and again. When, when, when we walk through the plagues, the Lord is saying, I'm doing this over Pharaoh and over the Egyptians that they would know that I am the Lord. God is passionate as he's delivering his people out of their Egyptian bondage for them to understand that he alone is Lord. Isaiah 45.5 says it directly, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you though you do not know me. This is what the Lord is saying as he begins these commandments. And he says, I am the Lord your God and I'm the Lord who's done something. And this line, it echoes down throughout redemptive history, throughout the rest of our Bibles, that this is the God who delivered them out of their Egyptian bondage. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is the God who delivers us from our bondage. We have a God who delivers. Amen? We've seen it in the first 19 chapters of this book. We've seen the mighty and intricate and powerful and awesome work of God to bring his people out of their bondage. And you've seen it in your life through the cross, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a God who delivers. We're sitting here, if you have believed in Jesus as your Savior, we're sitting here as a delivered people, no longer under the weight of our bondage. So he starts with that as a bit of a preamble that over, that kind of over and above this first command, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And God declares that he is God exclusive. Or to say it like this, he is exclusively God. Do you believe that? With your whole heart? I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. Now, this is a big deal because his people are coming out of a land with a a, a smorgasbord of gods. His people are traveling to a land with a pantheon of gods. And God is saying something as he, as he begins this covenant with his people of laying out for them what does, what does us dwelling together in relationship look like. They have to know this, that there can be no gods besides God, no little g gods beside big g God. If you remember, and I referenced this already, when the Lord brings the plagues on the Egyptians, we said as we walked through that, that's not just God uh, coming up with, you know, ten random creepy plagues. 
He's doing something intentionally. He is showing himself over and above the fake gods that the Egyptians worshipped. He was declaring that I am the Lord and there is no other. And so as this covenant begins, the Lord declares that. Now, I want to bring more application to us on this point, but I want to move to the second commandment in order to bring that application. Verse 4. He says, you shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a, am a what? What's your Bible say? Am a what? As a je- am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the, third, uh, on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The second commitment we make based on these commandments is this. I will not make idols. I will not make idols. Now, if we know the depths of our hearts, we know a commitment like that is easier said on a Sunday morning sitting in church than it is lived out. Amen? It was Calvin who said, the heart is what? An idol, you know what he said? It's a factory. It's an idol factory. And so the, these, these, these first two commandments come crashing into one another. The Lord is saying, I am the Lord alone. There is no other. You should have no other gods besides me. But then the Lord knows something about the human heart. The Lord knows something about my heart. And he knows something about your heart. That, that because he is the invisible God who cannot be shrunk down and molded into a form. He knows something about our hearts. We can find it very hard to worship an invisible God, but the human heart loves to attach its worship to something it sees and can feel and can touch. Erica and I try to preach to our kids over and over again this reality that God is with us. And do you know what our seven, five, and two, four-year-olds often will ask in reply? Then where is he? Valid question, right? But we know that our God cannot be shrunk down, molded into a finite form, and yet our human heart loves to attach its worship to things that, are, that we see, touch, can feel. And as we do that, what we're declaring is we are not satisfied by the vastness of a holy, powerful, invisible God. And it, it, we, 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 we foolishly want to grab on to something that is handcrafted and made by man, and it's just foolishness. But idols get crafted, and idols get bowed down to. And this is not just the problem of ancient history or underdeveloped nations in our day. This is a problem of us and our culture sitting in this room, amen? That when we come across this commandment, you shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, earth below, waters beneath. That the reality is, we too can craft idols and we too can bow to them, giving our worship and giving our allegiance in ways that this commandment confronts us. This is why I believe the Bible has so much to say about money. It's why I believe Jesus had so much to say about money. 
there is something powerful, something idolatrously worshipful that can happen when your hands are holding wads of cash. And many of us are like, praise God, I don't have that problem, right? There's something idolatrously powerful. You're like, we don't hold cash anymore. When you log into a bank account and you see that number high. Money is not the only idol. It is a big idol that our culture and many of us probably wrestle with in this room today. But money's not the only one. And, 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 and I, I, I think years ago, right, when I just, in my passion, would yell at you a lot from the pulpit, I'd probably tell you all the idols that you have and all the idols that I have. And I, but, but the reality is, I cannot, I, I, in, in integrity, I can't stand up here and tell you that you have idolatrous worship in your life. And I cannot identify for you what some of those idols might be. But the reality is, if we humble ourselves under the word of God and the reality of what the word says, many of us need to walk in here today understanding there are probably idols at play in my life. And so let me ask a few questions that might help you with the help of the Holy Spirit to identify some of those. The first question, they're not on the screen, so just listen closely. You don't need to write them down, but just listen. In moments of free time, what captivates your mind? When you find that you have some blank space in a day, in an evening, in a weekend, when your mind is not occupied, where, where does your mind go? And what, what might that tell us? Another question, what are you wanting? Follow this one. It's kind of wordy, but I, I hope it helps. What are you wanting that when you don't get it leads you to be angry? What are you wanting that when you don't get it, it leads to a response of anger? Our family had a chance to be in Tennessee um, two weeks ago over the fall break, and uh, we tried a restaurant we had heard good things about, and, and so we're sitting, I think it was called Puckets or something, we're sitting at a restaurant um, down there, and um, we get the kids seated, and um, and. We pick up the menus, and Erica, as she opened the menu, sent some, sent, said something that sent a shiver down my spine. And here's what she said. Do you want to split something? <laughs> Husbands, how many of you are with me? Right? Like, I'm like, I look forward to this dinner all day. And so I was like, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, that'd be good. And she's like, are you sure? And I'm like, oh no, 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 that'd be great. She's like, I'm thinking the half chicken, are you good? Yeah, 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 that, oh, that's all. And she kept looking at me, she's like peering through my eyes into my heart. She's like, no, really, like we don't have to do this. Like, are you sure? And I'm like, yeah, like, and finally we order and I kind of look at I'm like, why did you keep asking me? She's like, because I know you. She's like, I know if this thing shows up and it's like this big, you are going to be mild, low-grade grumpy the rest of the meal. And I'm like, I, we're laughing about it sitting at the table, but I am, I am, I'm convicted that my wife, after 12 and a half years of being married to me, knows that there can be a low-grade grumpiness that sets in over sharing a meal. And I just remember, I went to bed that night and I'm like, Lord, what's going on there? 
What's going on there? What are you wanting that when you don't get it leads you to be angry? Third thing, third question I just laid before us, trying to search out idols of the heart. What am, I, what am I willing to just knowingly and blatantly sin to get? Right? That is, that's, that's idle like alarm bells. I know what God says about this. If I'm honest, I don't care what God says about this. I'm driving a Mack truck through that barrier to get what I want. And so we know, God knows, that the human heart is so prone to wander that he begins this this covenant. This is what it's going to look like for us to live in community. No gods besides me and and, uh, kind of cascading down into that. Do not form or fashion gods. Do not make for yourselves idols that you will be tempted to trade a worship of the vastness of this invisible God for some idol crafted by human hands. Don't don't go there. So, So command one, no other gods before me. Command two, you shall not make for yourselves a carved, a fashioned, a formed image to bow down and worship. Oh, before I go to three, though, we came across that statement within this that it says that God is a what? He's a, he's a, he's a jealous God. He's a jealous God. Now, I wanted to provide a bit of a definition to that because I think in our day, right, we typically use the word jealous or, or someone being jealous in a negative connotation, but we're told here that God is a jealous God. Kirk Wellam, a professor in a seminary in Toronto, he says this, the jealousy of God is his holy commitment to his honor, glory, and love that manifests itself in the salvation of his people and the just condemnation of all who stand in opposition to him. So the jealousy of God is a good thing. It is his holy commitment to his honor, his glory, and love. It manifests, the jealousy of God, it manifests itself in the salvation of his people. And the jealousy of God manifests itself in the condemnation of all who stand in opposition to him. As as the passage says here, those who hate him. And the ramifications of that hate that pour down through the generations. But what's it say about those who love him? And the blessings of that, that cascade down through the generations. And so this jealousy of God is right and good and holy. God must be jealous for his honor and for his glory and for his love. And God is jealous for the worship of his people. And God being jealous for our worship does not mean that, that we're so great and God's up there, oh no, what, what will I ever do if I don't get their worship? No, the jealousy of God for our worship isn't because we're so great, it's because he's so great. And he's beckoning and calling us out of love for us that we would worship him for his glory and for our good. So he says, I'm a jealous God. So no gods before me. Don't craft an idol. Now to this third command here in verse 7. That orients orients our heart of a deep love of God. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Third commitment we make today, I will not misuse the name of the Lord my God. Now how many of you grew up in a home or, you know, 
have kind of an understanding of this command that um, basically, basic, the basic application of this command growing up was don't walk around OMGing everything. How many of you, right? You're like, I don't, you, you can raise your hand to that. <laughs> For sure, this command speaks to a flippant, irreverent, irworshipful use of the name of God. But this command is so much deeper than only that. When the Bible brings up the name of God, I don't think we, I don't, I know I can't fully grasp what the Bible is getting at when it brings up his name. Because when the Bible brings up the name of God, it is a reference to the totality of his being. When, when, when we see the scriptures that say, you know, at, at the name of God or at the name of Jesus, those are, those are ma- that's a massive, massive statement. And what, what I believe this command is getting at for God's covenant people is this understanding that, you, hey, people, you are mine. You bear, the, you bear my name on you. And because you bear my name, who, oh, by the way, don't lose sight of command one and two, I am, the God, I am God and there is no other, and there's no idol worthy of your worship, because you are a name bearer of this awesome, omnipotent, powerful God, how you speak my name and how you live out bearing my name, it deeply matters. When we Speak the name of God. Does it have the reverential awe attached to it that it should? We live in a day and an age where we just so flippantly OMG everything. Without even thinking about what are we declaring. We live in a day and age where we just GD everything. Trying to censor this thing, parents, okay, right? Do we know what that means? But as I'm saying, it's, it's bigger than just those phrases. It's, it's how do we live under, with this understanding that we are the people of God. And how we talk about him deeply matters and reveals the state of the heart. And how we live bearing his name deeply matters and reveals the state of the heart. I mean, no, no illustration does this justice, how we use and speak and utter the name of God. But, but maybe from an earthly standpoint, something that can just help give us. How many of you, even as adults, have those people in your life that you're like, I don't care how old I get, they will always be Mr. and Mrs.? Like you can't even bring yourself to say your first name. There's a mentor I have, a longtime pastor in this community, who will always be Dr. So-and-so to me. And he's told me over and over again. I just, we just set up uh, uh, time for lunch, and I said, Dr. So-and-so, can you meet on this day? He says, Dr. So-and-so is busy that day, but then he used his, this person can meet that day. I can't do it. I cannot bring myself to say his first name. Out of a sense of respect. But now you're like, okay, but that illustration falls on its face because the people that are close and God is to be close and intimate, we do use their first name. 
But think about the people closest to us in our life. Mom, dad. We call them by a title of respect and of intimacy. The way we talk about God matters. And the way we talk about God reveals the state of where our heart believes about God. And so I just want, I, I, let's take an inventory this week. When the name of God rolls off our tongue, what, what heart thoughts, heart motives, what, what's going on in the heart that's attached to that name of God? Let's take inventory of that this week. And so these, these three commands, they come crashing together. No, no gods besides me. Do not... Do not form for yourself an idol. When you speak of the name of the Lord your God, you do not speak it in vain. Vain means pointless, meaningless. It's empty. You don't speak about the name of God like that. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. But now this, this fourth command, this fourth commandment, and I said really the first four, you often hear it said, orient our heart of what love for God looks like. How does this fourth commandment, what does it have to do with, with, with a love for God? Uh, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made, made it what? Made it holy. Fourth commitment today. I will commit to a Sabbath rest. Now, I want us to notice something about, well, first of all, would you just notice by looking in your Bible, this second command, kind of the page space it gets, and then this fourth command, too, about Sabbath, the page space it gets. Sabbath is going to continue to come up in the book of Exodus. God's going to call it a sign of the covenant he's making here with his people. And so this, this Sabbath reality is a, is a big deal. Now, I want you to notice that within the context of this commandment, the Lord is unpacking what I'm calling a rhythm of creation. This six-in-one rhythm of creation. Six days labor, six days work, six days create, but one day rest. One day stop. One day looks different. Now, I, I'm going to be honest with you, I have found it comical through the years at how hard people work to get out of a Sabbath rest. I remember I'm in a coffee shop just up the road here probably three, four years ago, and I'm talking to a believer who's just in an intense season of work. And hear me now, I know there are intense seasons of work, but I just asked him in the midst of this intense season of work, he's just... What, you know, how are you doing at, at building in a Sabbath to this intense season? And I remember the look on his face. The look on his face, it was kind of that like eyebrow raised, head turning, like, why are you asking me that? And I remember he said to me, Jesus is my Sabbath. 
And I said, oh, no, I, I, he was referencing the book of Hebrews. I get, no, totally. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Jesus comes as the greater big S Sabbath. I, I understand all that. But, but I don't believe that negates a, cre- a, a creation of rhythm that God has built in here to work six and rest one. And I, I see so often people using different things to get out of this reality of working six, rest one. And I often find it funny at how God has given us the gift of this rhythm and we argue with him of how much we need the gift. And in fact, if you look at what it says here, verse 11 appeals to the Lord. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. If, 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 this, if, if God worked like this and God needed this, why in the world do we think we need something different as people created in his image? And so I just want to exhort us to a Sabbath rhythm today. Now, I'm not interested in laying down on you legalism and legalistic rules Some of you in the room grew up maybe in homes or in areas where the word Sabbath brought with it a bunch of weird things that you couldn't do on Sunday. I remember hearing my parents talk who grew up in a a, a very, both of them who grew up in very, uh, I'll just leave it. I just remember hearing them talk and mom talking about not being able to ride her bike on Sunday. I believe, if I remember right, uh, my dad, they had a pool in their backyard, just kind of a cheap above-ground pool in their backyard, and he would talk about his kids just like sitting and staring at the pool because they weren't allowed to go swim in it on Sunday. Not interested in that. What I am interested in is us as a faith family enjoying a day a week of worshipful fellowship with the Lord and with others. I am interested in us enjoying slow walks on a Sabbath day and time in a gar- unhurried time in a garden and bike rides down trails and slow breakfasts and coffee dates. And are you ready for it? Margin enough for a two o'clock nap. Amen? And I believe when we do this, there are two things. What does this have to do with our worship of God, with a life of loving God? I believe when we do this, there's two things we declare to God. Thank you, and I trust you. Let's start with thank you. When we bring our lives onto a worshipful submission of six and one, I believe we say thank you, God. Thank you for work. Thank you for the honor and privilege of imaging you who's a creator and worker who in six days formed and fashioned this world, this universe. God, thank you for work. And I believe it also says thank you for rest. Thank you that you have not made me to be God. That you've wired it in me, both sleep every day and Sabbath every week that reminds me I am not God. All of this doesn't hinge on my continuing to work. Thank you for that, Lord. And thank you for the gift of rest. I believe when we Sabbath, it says thank you, and I believe it says I trust you. If you're sitting here right now and you're like, that sounds great. 
dude, I'm glad you have time for a Sabbath in your week, of which it never actually does feel like I do, by the way. But you have no idea. There's no way I can take a day off. If I take a day off, then there's just no way I can't do it. Sabbath every week says, God, I trust you. I trust that you are able to do in six what I can't do in seven. I trust you that as I put the tools down, you got them. I trust you that if I neglect a Sabbath, what I will give up will cost way more than what I could potentially gain if I would just continue to work all seven. And so I want you to do something today, and I mean it today. I think you should get a calendar in front of you. If you're married, you and your spouse together. I think you should look, and I think you should identify what's our six and one. What six do we work? What one do we rest? And then I'd encourage you to, on that calendar, whether digital or paper, my wife still uses a paper calendar, that over that day, did I get an amen of that? That's heresy heresy (laughs) that over that day in big block capital letters you write the word sabbath because if you don't schedule it guess what it'll get robbed every time oh i'll just take this meeting i'll be but i'll be back real quick oh i'll just do this sabbath i believe comes up as an offering of worship to the lord that says thank you and i trust you i got to land part one right here. By God's grace, the Ten Commandments draw a covenantal sketch of a community that loves God and loves people. Amen? We're drawing the sketch out together. And the, 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 if we, as we make our way more through the book of Exodus, that sketch begins to get filled in of what a life of love for God and love for people looks like lived out within community. But, but let me just ask this question as the band's coming back out and, and we're preparing our hearts for a time of communion. Let me ask this question. Um, how many of you are convicted in any way? We've made it through four of these that orient commands of what our heart of worship is to look like to the Lord. And it's convicting, isn't it? Like when you read no gods besides God, when you read no idols, like I, I know my heart. I know the idol factory that it is. And, and there's something about as, as my heart is confronted by the word of God in this form that, that I just say we, we desperately need a perfect commandment keeper on our behalf. Do we not? Let me ask it again. Stop stirring. Look at me. We desperately need a perfect command keeper on our behalf, do we not? Someone who has perfectly, without fail, lived out the commands of God that we never could. And then the same someone who went to the cross and paid the penalty for the sin that we, because we couldn't live them out. And as we prepare our hearts for communion, as we take these elements here in a moment, that's what we're remembering. If you're newer here today and you have no context to what we're about to do in the taking of communion, let me just um, give you a bit of a context. We believe as a group of people that Jesus Christ came and he paid the penalty for our sin, my sin and your sin included. Because we cannot perfectly keep the very things we've just studied today. 
that it was through his shed blood that our sin is paid for, that it's through his death that the penalty of death that our sin deserves is, is paid for. And that the Bible says that when we call on his name, when we call on the name of the Lord, we can be saved. We're looking to his substitutionary death to save us from our sin. And so as a group of Jesus followers, the Bible commands us to regularly remember this sacrifice on our behalf.